Uh, just to review the announcements that everybody ought to be familiar with, the baptism on July 9th at 1 o'clock. I don't know if anybody else wants to, uh, at least nobody else has indicated interest in the baptism. Also, um, I think everything's set now. May need to talk to you after class, Alan, about Meyer sending a bo- their box, mailing that. And then they'll need some help packing boxes, maybe getting those ready to go at the end of the summer. That'll be after July 21st, I mean, August 21st. Then Camperete. We need to be praying for Camperete coming up the last week of July, also for Vacation Bible School. I think there's still some need for, Bryce just walked out, need for volunteers for Vacation Bible School, which is the third week of July. And Camp Arete is not the last week of July. I stand corrected. It's July 16th to 22nd. And it's in Tennessee at the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. And there is a need for a female camp counselor for this summer. If anyone is fits that bill and is interested in participating, to contact Jeff Phipps. Excuse me? A men's prayer breakfast a week from Saturday on uh, July the 17th, on June the 17th. One of those summer months. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we can recover spiritually if necessary, that we are spiritually prepared and cleansed uh, in uh, being in the appropriate uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit so that we can be Uh, uh, make this a spiritually profitable time. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we can come together today, that we can gather in freedom and that we still have this freedom in this nation to teach your word and proclaim the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would restrain those who seek to destroy this freedom, that you would also work to raise up young men to teach, desire to teach your word, to be pastors, young men and women, to be missionaries, to serve you with their lives in taking the gospel, either uh, within this nation or abroad. Father, we have to have a passion for the word. This is what laid the foundation for this nation. And without that passion for the word, there will be no uh, transformation of the culture. There will be no individual transformation as we uh, renew our mind unless there is a passion to grow spiritually, a passion to put your word above everything else, and to come to understand that apart from spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, though we may accomplish a lot in life, we may have a lot in life, that which we take with us at death is that which is produced by the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life, and that will last for eternity. 
Father, we pray that you would give us an eternal focus, living today in light of eternity. And we pray that tonight, as we continue to study about how to give an answer for the hope that is in us, that you'd help us to concentrate, come to uh, understand these things, and and commit them to our memory and our thinking so that uh, we can be ready, prepared to use them when the opportunity presents. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're still in First Peter, in case anybody wonders, but we are continuing to study the implications and applications of First Peter 3.15, where we are challenged to always be ready, prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. I have spent uh, 11 hours in this sub-series talking about apologetics, and a lot of what we talked about in apologetics has to do with strategy. Strategy is important. As we saw last week in the episode, as we analyzed um, God's Not Dead 1, is because strategy is method. It's how you do what you do. And if you believe that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, then you have to understand that there are right ways and wrong ways to give the gospel, right ways and wrong ways to give an answer. And so that's why it's important to study these different approaches and what the underlying methodology, the underlying strategy is, so that to the best of our ability, and I keep saying this, none of us do this perfectly. We all are in a growth mode, but to the best of our ability, we need to understand these strategies and tactics, but we also need to know the weapons. And that's what I'm going to look at for the next three or four lessons is trying to capture for us the evidence. Because I said, even though one of the strategies is is labeled the evidentialist approach, that doesn't mean that the other, um, with the exception of the fideist approach, doesn't believe in evidence. And I pointed out, as we did our biblical study, going from Genesis into Acts, that again and again, God demonstrates through objective evidence what his work is. He he doesn't expect human beings to vacate their mind and ju- just put their mind in neutral and not think. Belief is not dis- is not putting your brain in neutral and believing that which is impossible. There have been some people and some theologians who have liberal theologians who have defined faith that way. That faith is believing that which is Impossible or that which is irrational. And that's not what faith is at all. Faith is fundamental to every form of knowledge. That's why I over and over again go through the fact that in rationalism, faith is ultimately in man's ability to think clearly and to arrive at answers clearly apart from revelation and apart from uh, input from God. Empiricism says that man on his own, independent from any input from God, revelation, that man is able to arrive at ultimate answers on empiricism alone. But there's a need for revelation. It's not that thinking is not necessary. It's that thinking needs to start with the right presuppositions, which is a creator God who is completely distinct from his creation and that he has revealed himself to us. Now that we have gone through that, I want to look at the basic questions that we often are asked. 
And we should be prepared to at least have a thumbnail answer, something in our mind where we can tick off in our thinking four or five things that we could relate to in explaining the gospel to somebody. Somebody says, well, why do you trust the Bible? A lot of us, when that happens, we're put on the spot. It's like that final exam and we just freeze and our mind just sort of seizes up and go, I've heard this so many times. So here, here are the three biggies, the three big questions that people ask. Well, how can you really believe the Bible? Now, they'll usually raise a lot of uh, secondary questions. Hasn't it been translated a lot of different times? Hasn't been it been changed down through the centuries? They have a lot of questions. I'm not going to go into those because my goal in doing this is to provide this this simple thumbnail sketch that we can easily master and then on that build with all with additional information as we go along but these three basic questions are can we trust the bible second who was jesus was jesus god that's a subset question was jesus god um, some people today ask the question who was jesus because they've never heard anything about Jesus. And I'm not talking about people who live in, uh, people who live in Africa probably have heard more, or in Brazil have heard more than some people in some parts of this country. And I'll never forget when I was in the seventh grade, and that was more than just a couple of years ago, that my seventh grade English teacher was talking about, I think that we were reading, I forget who the author was now, short, short story called The Magi. And she talked about the birth of Jesus, and she had she told our class that she had one child in that class, seventh grader, said, who's Jesus? I've never heard of him. You know, that was probably 50 years ago. So we often assume that because people are in America, we talk about Christmas, we have all these things going on, that people have some rudimentary knowledge, and many, many people don't today. It's, it's getting less and less. So all these questions about who was Jesus, was Jesus God, how do we know that he is who he claimed to be, uh, how do we know that he wasn't just a good teacher or wasn't just a revolutionary, which is, was a popular uh, approach to Jesus back in the 60s, or that Jesus wasn't just a, a, another rabbi offering another approach to Judaism. So that's one. That's a question we need to answer. And the third question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? How do we know that he really rose from the dead? How do we know that it wasn't a swoon? How do we know that it wasn't something the disciples just made up about him? How do we know? So we should be able to answer those questions. And in many lessons, I've taken a lot of time to go uh, through these in detail. But what I want to do in these short lessons is not say everything there is to say or a lot that there is to say about each of these, but just give us four, five, six things in in each one that we can um, use to organize our thinking. So the first question is, can we trust the Bible? Now, as we look at this, we have to recognize that as we approach this, that we have to 
as especially if we're talking to somebody, we have to explain certain things. We are coming at this not as if uh, the Bible is some neutral piece of historical uh, data, and we can't approach it as if uh, the information is even treated as neutral. As we saw in our uh, previous studies, that people already know God exists. People already know that God is speaking to them. We're not trying to prove the Bible is true, but we do want to help them understand and tweak that suppression mechanism. And so we're giving that which validates the Bible. But we want to make sure that we're talking about, when we talk about the Bible and we talk about God, that they understand who it is that we're talking about. Christians believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, that it is revealed by God through men to the human race, and it is recorded and preserved through the centuries. So when we start with that assumption, we need to let people know we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God revealed by God to men uh, for the human race, and it's been recorded and preserved by God down through the centuries. So when we talk about this, the God that we're talking about, the Christian God, or you can say the Judeo-Christian God, is the creator of all things, including all human beings. And when we think about God creating human beings, God is a communicator, God has thought and reasoned throughout all of eternity, and he wants to communicate to this creature. So he has the ability, because he is omnipotent, to create the proper receptor in the creature. So he is able to create human beings, to create their ability to communicate, and their ability to understand what he communicates uh, to them. So the Bible is God's revelation to man. Now, when we talk about this, when we ask this question, the Bible claims to be God's revelation of himself to man, this is either true or false, right? It's either true or false. We talk to somebody and say, well, what do you think about the Bible? Well, here are your options. It's either what it claims to be or it's something else. It's either God's revelation to man or it's not, true or false. Now, if it's false then it's not any better than any other book. It's just another book filled with human opinions. If it's false, then it's a fraud. It claims to be something that it's not, and it's deceptive, and therefore it should be rejected completely. Is that the evidentiary value that we have in history of the Bible? No. If it's true, then it's a unique book. That means one of a kind. I constantly hear people saying that that um, that they, they, it's it's only it's the only unique thing. No, unique means only one of a kind. You don't qualify it. Unique doesn't take an adverb or an adjective. Um, so it's a unique book. It's the only one of its kind, and therefore it should be valued of all things. That's where we should come to as believers. When we look at the evidence for ourselves as believers, not talking about in a witnessing situation, because of a lot of Christian evidence is really is to confirm and strengthen our faith. Every Christian at some time or another expresses doubts. 
Well, how do I know? They hear certain things. Uh, today we get a tremendous amount of peer pressure messages coming from um, uh, the culture, messages that we hear in movies or television shows. And so people say, well, how do, how do we know that's true? Of course, the sin nature has a, uh, has a trend to reject the authority of the Scripture, so that's always there. So for the Christian, the more we're reminded of the uniqueness of the Bible— the more it should strengthen our commitment that I should be focusing on this more than anything else in life. This is God's message to me. God has given me the instructions for how to live within his creation, how to live within a fallen creation so that I can uh, survive and live a life that glorifies him. So we look at these. We're going to answer this by looking at these four basic topics. We'll only get three done tonight, I think. The first is that the Bible is a one-of-a-kind book. So when we say, how can we trust the Bible? First line of reasoning is it's a unique book. It's one-of-a-kind. There's no other book like the Bible. Second line is to think about what the Bible claims for itself. No other book claims quite the same thing for itself as the Bible. There are other books that claim to be from God and revelation from God, but not in quite the same way that the Bible does. And then we look at two things, the testimony of archaeology and the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. And what we'll see when we get there is that they don't prove the Bible is true, but they val- help validate the claims that the Bible makes in uh, question number number two. So... When we approach this, we have to be reminded that our starting point is that the Christian God's a creator of all things, including human beings, and their ability to communicate and to understand uh, God's communication to them. That's, that's important. The world out there doesn't think we can hear God. But our presupposition is that God created the human receptor and God can communicate and people can understand. The second presupposition that we have is that the Bible assumes God's existence and claims that it preserves and expresses God's communication to humankind. The Bible assumes this existence. All throughout the Bible, the presupposition of every verse, every statement is this comes from God and is directed to man. And the third presupposition is that, as such, the Bible is internally consistent with its claims to be the revelation from God, and no evidence has ever surfaced which contradicts that claim. There's never been any evidence that disproves anything in the Bible. Now, there are people who will raise certain things. They'll say, well, there's a contradiction here. Uh, This verse doesn't make sense in light of that verse. Uh, They will say, well, we never heard of these people before, so they must not have existed, so therefore the Bible is wrong. And down through the ages, the problem with all of those objections is they're based on not having enough evidence, enough understanding. And so either through archaeology or through the discovery of 
of, of word studies, word meanings, putting together passages, we discovered that there aren't contradictions, that there aren't problems. So the Bible has never been demonstrated by anybody to have uh, these flaws that they claim it to have. So what we recognize is that um, when we look at the Bible, there it is a unique book, a one-of-a-kind book. And so as we look at this, there's eight things. And some of these you can string together in one statement, but I've broken them down a little bit. But it's helpful to remember this. Now, you've heard me say a lot of this uh, several times, but I'm breaking it down so that we get it. What makes it unique? Well, first thing that makes it unique is that it was written over a period of 1,600 years, possibly longer. 1,600 years would start with Moses and go through um, go through. Revelation to the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, the last book of the New Testament written about 95. Job was written, I believe, before Moses wrote the Pentateuch. In fact, Job could have been written as early as 1900, so this may cover a broader period of time, but for the sake of a summary, the Bible's written over a period of 1600 years, and second, it was written by over 40 Authors who came from a wide variety of backgrounds and education. So you have uh, these books that are written over 1,600 years by over 40 different authors. And just to give you an example, you can go through uh, a lot of them, but Moses was trained from birth to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. So he had one of the greatest educations, if not the greatest education available at that time in history. Later, one of the most famous kings of Israel is David. King David is usually known to a lot of people because of the story of David uh, killing Goliath. David was a shepherd as a young man. He became a warrior, and he eventually became the king of Israel. He was also a musician and a poet. Very different background from Moses. Amos was a herdsman and a fig picker. He's one of the prophets uh, in the minor prophets. And then when you get into the New Testament, Peter and John were commercial fishermen, and Paul was a trained rabbi. And there are many, many others who came from different backgrounds, different educational um, uh, levels. And yet God wrote the Bible through these men over a period of 1,600 years. So the Bible's written over a period of 1,600 years, perhaps uh, longer. It's written by over 40 different men who came from all walks of life. It's not just third. It's not just one book. It is 66 books. The word Bible comes from the uh, Latin word biblia, the Greek word biblios, which means a book. And it's not just one book. It is 66 different books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And yet the Bible presents, despite it having 40 different authors and being 66 different books, it presents one unified theme with no contradictions, no contradictions even in the sub-themes. Uh, even though it's written over such a long period of time on three different continents. Some was written on Africa, some written in Asia, some written in Europe. 
three different continents and three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, parts of the Old Testament written in Aramaic, and Greek, by over 40 men from widely different backgrounds, stations in life, education, and culture. Moses wrote in the Sinai Desert. Daniel and Ezekiel wrote in Babylon. Daniel wrote as prime minister of of, uh, Babylon. Paul wrote in Greece, in Italy, as well as in uh, what we now call Turkey, which was that time was Asia Minor. Okay, so the Bible has a unified theme. There's not contrary. You can't take 40 people who all believe the same thing. You can't take 40 graduates of the most conservative, consistently conservative seminary and have them write on 10 different themes and have them agree on everything in the Bible. You couldn't take a classroom of students at Dallas Seminary in 1960 and have everybody in the class write an exegetical paper on a certain passage and have every one of them agree. But here we have over 40 authors who write on some of the most controversial issues uh, known to man. They write about the origin of the universe. They write about the nature of man in the image of God and then fallen in sin. They write about marriage and family and government capital punishment, moral absolute, sexuality, the existence of God, salvation and sin and eternal punishment, and they all agree on all of those topics. Furthermore, point five, the Bible's written in a variety of styles and uh, genres. Now, by styles, I mean Peter has one style, Paul has another style, uh, Ezra had another style, Isaiah writes in his own personal style, and he's different from Ezekiel. Everybody writes in their own individual personal style, and they wrote in different genres. Some wrote in poetry. Some wrote in instructional or didactic material. Some is written in epistles. Some is written as prophecy. Some a parable. So you have all these different types of literature and in different styles, but they all exhibit the same message and are in agreement. Under point six, it has a unified focus on salvation, that salvation is always by grace through faith, and salvation is uh, anticipated in the Old Testament, and it is looked back on in the New Testament. The Old Testament anticipated the uh, the coming of a Savior. God promised and predicted a Savior who would pay the penalty for sin and provide eternal salvation. In the New Testament, we learn that the Savior, the promised Savior, enters into human history as Jesus of Nazareth, dies on the cross for all sin, and salvation is by belief that Jesus is the Savior who died for the sins of the world. So it's a unified message. So you have 1,600 years, you have over 40 writers who come from different education backgrounds, who are on different continents, who write on different countries, who have a completely different cultural framework because of where they are uh, from, and yet they write a consistent message, and they all agree on the primary issue, which is God's plan for salvation. 
7th. The Bible is unique in its preservation. It's remarkable. And this is what you get from liberals and from critics is that how in the world can the Bible be what it was originally written to be? And we have evidence that we can go to. We'll talk about some things in archaeology later, but part of archaeology is the discovery of ancient manuscripts. And it's remarkable what we discover about the New Testament. Over 5,600 Greek manuscripts have been discovered of the New Testament. Over 5,600 Greek manuscripts have been preserved and many of those are dated within 50 to 150 years of their original writing. According to the Bible, Jesus was crucified around 33 AD, and the um, close of the canon, the last book that was written in the New Testament is the uh, revelation of, of Jesus to John. That's written about 95. Everything's written. The oldest scrap that we have that has been preserved is a papyrus that is dated to 120, and it's from a section in the Gospel of John. 120, that's within 35 years. And it was found in Egypt. Now, if you know when where the Apostle John was when he wrote John, you know that he was up in what is now Turkey, who was up in, in, the, in Ephesus in Asia. And so he is a long way from Egypt. So for this fragment to have been found in Egypt means that that was written, copied, transmitted, and found its way in those 35 years down to Egypt where it was kept and, and preserved. So... That doesn't leave a whole lot of time. In fact, liberals used to say everything in the New Testament was written uh, after uh, 150 or 200, three or four generations later. I've had people raise that question to me. But they'll say, how do you know? How can we tell? Well, if we didn't have any of those 5,600 Greek manuscripts, we have over 19,000 translations into other languages. Uh, ancient translations into the Syriac, into Latin, into Coptic, that's Egyptian, ancient Egyptian, and Aramaic. 19,000 translations plus 5,600 Greek manuscripts, that's over 24,000 ancient documents. Nothing in the ancient world, no manuscript, no writing that has survived to the present has anything close to that. In fact, many of them at the at the most only have a hundred copies that are preserved, and many of those copies are six hundred to a thousand years after the original writing. I'll give you some examples in, in just a minute. And then we have over eighty six thousand quotations by pastors and Bible teachers in sermons, in letters, and in what's called lectionary. A lectionary was every Sunday morning when they would read a passage of Scripture, they would copy it down onto a a piece of papyrus or onto vellum or parchment or something, and then they would read that. That's the weekly reading of Scripture from the pulpit. That was a lectionary. And so we have 86,000 of those. We have so many quotations from 
uh, sermons and letters and lectionaries that we could almost reconstruct the entire New Testament with, even if we didn't have any of the ancient manuscripts. So there's no room for doubt. There's no room to say, well, we can't be sure that's what Paul wrote. We can't be sure it was written. Because many of these were written by people like, for example, Clement of Rome, who was who lived in the second half of the first century between, uh, and he wrote between 70 and 90 A.D. So this is contemporary with the last the life of the last apostles. So we have a vast amount of information and comparison, and you can go to a lot of different works such as. Uh, uh, Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You can Google it. You can find char- huge charts that people have put up uh, indicating when an ancient writing was, was uh, written and what the oldest copy, extant copy is and, um, and how many copies we have of that. For example, Plato lived around 400 B.C. I think he died uh, around 430 or 440. The oldest copy we have of Plato is from A.D. 900. That's 1,300 years after he wrote it. You know, the New Testament, oldest New Testament copy we have is 35 years from the time it was written. It's amazing. This is We know Plato from uh, uh, the oldest copy we have, which is 1,300 years after he wrote it, and we have, how many copies do you think we have? We have seven. How many copies do we have of the Greek New Testament? 5,600, over 5,600. As I was doing research on this today, because I went back to some old notes, but I know it's been updated since then. Because the last time I did this, which was t- about 10 or 11 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, from my notes, it was over 5,200 manuscripts. And then I found uh, an article that was written in 2012 and said it was over 5,600. It's like 5,680 manuscripts. So I just put over 5,600 because now it's probably getting close to 6,000. Julius Caesar died in 44 B.C. The oldest copy we have of his Gaelic Wars dates from A.D. 900, which is 1,000 years later, and we have 10 copies. Aristotle lived in 322 or died in 322 B.C. The oldest copy of Aristotle that we have dates from A.D. 1100. That's 1400 years later. It's 21, it's 20, what, 2017 now. 1400 years ago was in the 600s. That's the difference in time. Think about that between the time Aristotle wrote and the time... uh, uh, the oldest copy that we have. And we have 49 copies of, of Aristotle. So in terms of the New Testament, there's no doubt in terms of its of its presentation uh, or preservation. In the Old Testament, it's even more remarkable. We'll talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls a little bit later on. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered uh, down in an area called Qumran, where there was a, an ancient, um, at the time of Christ, a, a sect um, that lived there, a very religious Jewish sect. There's a lot of debate as to who they were. Most people think they, they were the Essenes. 
And when it appeared that, that the Romans were going to overrun uh, Judea, they rolled up all their scrolls and everything, put them into clay pots, and hid them in caves. There they stayed until they were d- discovered around 1947 to 48, roughly at the same time. In fact, at the same time Israel's fighting her war for independence, those uh, scrolls began to surface. The fascinating thing about them is that at the time they were discovered, the oldest extant manuscripts we had of the Hebrew Old Testament was from about 900 to 950 A.D. So that's 900 years after Christ. But with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found manuscripts that were preserved that had been written or copied a hundred to two hundred years before Christ, so there's a thousand year difference between the copies of the of the Masoretic text, which is the main text of the Old Testament, and these Qumran documents. And what they discovered was that there were very very few differences. Most of the differences were uh, stylistic; they were spelling. A uh, word was left out here, word was left out or added there, but it was it was almost pristine. In fact, Miller Burroughs, who was a professor of Old Testament at Yale University and was a, a scroll expert in the early 50s, originally thought that there were 10 acceptable differences between the Dead Sea Isaiah scroll and the Masoretic text where he would prefer the reading of the Dead Sea scroll and the reading of the Maser- then uh, he, over the reading of the Masoretic text. What's interesting is ten years later, after further study, he said he wouldn't accept any of the differences found in Qumran. That the Masoretic text was a superior reading. So that just shows us that the text didn't change any. It was remarkably preserved uh, by the scribes down through the centuries. So we can be sure that what we have is what was what was written. And then the eighth thing that makes the Bible unique is that it doesn't present its characters as flawless humans, as great uh, heroes who don't make mistakes. They are described with all of their sins and all of their flaws. Noah's sin of drunkenness is fully described. The sins and failures of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are blatantly obvious. Uh, The descriptions of the spirituality of the Jews, their idolatry, their their child sacrifice, their rebellion against God through generation after generation— is um, is described in horrible detail throughout the Old Testament. Uh, David, the great hero of Israel and great king and uh, forerunner of the Messianic king, uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, conspired to have her husband killed when it was discovered that she was pregnant, and then he covered it up, um, covered up the whole thing, but God exposed it. Uh, the Gospels make clear that the disciples, the men that Jesus gathered around him, had many failures and flaws and were uh, dense in terms of understanding spiritual truth and had many failures. Also, the horrible spiritual lives in the, of Christians in the early church are described. So the Bible doesn't cover it up. It is, it is openly and transparently honest such that we can conclude with Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary, 
that the Bible is not a book, is not such a book that a man would write if he could or could write if he would. When you read the Bible through, and sometimes when you're talking to people, you say, well, I just don't agree with the Bible. Really? Where? Can you point it out to me? Have you read all the, the Bible all the way through? Now, every time, now and then you may catch somebody who's going to say, yeah, I've read it all the way through. And then you may think, what am I going to say now? What you say now is, did you understand it? There was a man who helped form this church, two men. One of them was a client of the other one and went to him one day for to talk about finances. And uh, uh, the man he was going to for advice noticed that he had a Bible in his briefcase. And he said, what are you doing with that Bible? And he said, well, my mother wants me to read it, so I'm reading it. Do you understand it? No. Well, here, take a couple of these booklets and read them and see, see what you think. You went by and he came in again and said, you still reading your Bible? I said, yeah. He said, well, I read those books you gave me and I started going to that church and I've learned a lot about the Bible. I had no idea what the Bible was teaching. And of course, eventually both of those men were foundational to starting West Houston Bible Church. It's just asking questions. Don't try to give them all the answers. Just ask the questions and see where it goes. So, we've looked at the first question, first issue. The Bible is a one-of-a-kind book. No other book is like the Bible. So, that's where we start. Why do you believe the Bible is true? Well, it is a fascinating book. There's no other book like it. When you compare it to the religious books, the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, other religious books, they're written at one time. Most of them are written by one person. Joseph Smith allegedly translates the Book of Mormon, but all at one time. Muhammad allegedly translates the Quran, but it's all given at one time. In fact, he never wrote anything down. It didn't get written down until after he died. His people remembered what he had, uh, what he had said. But it's all one person. But in the Bible, you have 1,600 years. 40 different writers, all in agreement with one another. It is unique, one of a kind. But what does the Bible claim about itself? Now, let's look at what the Bible says. That doesn't mean that that it, this is a circular argument. The Bible says it's the Word of God, so therefore it must be the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. If a book is going to claim to be the Word of God then it's going to bear internal witness, consistency within itself. I've already talked about that. But it's also going to be able to be uh, evaluated or validated by external evidence. That doesn't mean we're looking at this as um, that it is proving the external evidence proves the Bible. It corroborates it. And so, for example, if you read the Book of Mormon... It talks about numerous geographical locations, but you can't find those geographical locations anywhere on the planet. It claims that certain things happened at certain places, but you can go to those places and you can dig till you get to the center of the earth and you'll never find anything 
that even remotely resembles what was claimed to have happened there. In contrast with the Bible, you can go to Jericho and you can dig down and you can see the walls and you can see the layers and the stratification of the different cities that were built there. And you can see the burn layer, uh, which occurred at the time uh, of Joshua. Some of you have been with me uh, to see that. You can go to Shiloh and you can see the area uh, where the tabernacle would have been set up. It's interesting because it's the only flat area around, and it's just a little bit larger than the dimensions of the tabernacle. And so when that area is excavated, they found all sorts of artifacts related to uh, related to the tabernacle. You can, of course, go to the center of Jerusalem, uh, old city of Jerusalem, and what do you discover there? You discover the Temple Mount. And uh, by the way, if you haven't realized it, this week is the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. This is the week that is the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, and it's been great this week. APAC has had a special series that people can could listen to interviews with historians and foreign policy experts. And today uh, they had an hour interview that I listened to, and um, it was with the one of the soldiers who was the second Israeli to go on to the Temple Mount and who was initially told to raise an Israeli flag over the Temple Mount, over the Dome of the Rock. And about 10 minutes later, Foreign Minister Moshe Dayan showed up and said, take it down, and uh, we're not going to uh, cause that much disruption. And then he eventually turned the Temple Mount back over to, even though Israel controls it, it is under the immediate administration of the uh, of the Arab uh, sort of administrative group called the Waqf. But you can go there, and there's excavations that have taken place there uh, and around the Temple Mount that come up with evidence. You can see the old city of David. So all of this substantiates, it, it corroborates. It's not proving, but it corroborates. So what does the Bible say about itself? Well, first of all, the Bible claims to be the objective communication of God to man in a way that no other book does. Over 900 times it claims to communicate God's specific words. It uses phrases like God said 46 times, God spoke 12 times, the Lord said 233 times, the Lord spoke 133 times, and says the Lord, or thus says the Lord, over 500 times, over 900 times, it specifically claims that it is recording precisely the very words of God. You have some passages like Exodus 34.10 says, Then God said, or Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 1.1 and one two, we read God after He spoke long ago to the fathers. Then in verse two, in these last days has spoken. The claim of the Bible is that God has spoken uh, directly to man in an objective way, not some sort of internal subjective. I just feel like God's telling me to do something. But in play, at times, if you were there with a 
digital recorder, like on Mount Sinai, you could have recorded the very voice of God. Second, I've got six things here on showing that the Bible claims um, what the Bible claims about itself. So the first is it claims to be the objective communication of God to man. Second, it claims to be a unique, inspired revelation from God. Uniquely inspired. Verses like 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally in the Greek, it says it's breathed out by God. God exhales it and it goes into the minds of the writers of Scripture. Second Peter one twenty to twenty one says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What that means is they're not coming up with it on their own. The prophets did not originate the message. They were in the last phrase. They were moved by the Holy, the Holy Spirit uh, as they spoke from God. Zechariah 7.12 is another fascinating verse. Says, and they made their hearts like flint. That's talking about the Jews who are hardened their hearts toward God so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Clear mention of two persons of the Trinity there. The Lord of hosts who sent through his spirit through the prophets. So that confirms is is what Peter is talking about, that these prophets were moved by God the Holy Spirit. So the Bible claims to be the objective revelation of God. It claims to be breathed out or inspired by God. And that inspiration extends down to the minute details of Scripture. It's not just the ideas, because ideas are shaped by words. You change the words, you change the message. So it extends down to the very words, the grammar, and the details of the words. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, Until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter, that's a yud in the Hebrew, that looks like an apostrophe, or a stroke, uh, that's called a tittle in the old King James, and that's just a part of a, of a word. For example, if you look at the letter Y here at the end of truly, if you took that little piece, that little tail hanging down, that would be a tittle. If you took that away, then you'd be left with a V. So that little part of a letter is important. Even to that detail, the Word of God is inspired. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus said regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken by God? He is saying the Old Testament was spoken by God. In verse 32, he refers to what was said in the Old Testament, where God spoke and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God didn't say, though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for almost 2,000 years, I was their God. The am, the present tense, indicates continued existence, that they're still alive. And he's using this to show that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Then in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham in the Old Testament and to his seed, a word that refers to descendants. And 
Uh, he doesn't say to seeds, plural, but to seed, the singular, meaning one, that is Christ. It's the singular of the noun that is important, Paul is saying, and that points us to Jesus. So, Bible claims to be the objective communication of God to man. Second, the Bible claims to be the uniquely inspired revelation of God to man. Third, that inspiration in, uh, extends down to the minutia, the minute details of the grammar and the words. And fourth, thus the Bible makes a claim to be absolute truth. It's not merely empirical truth from human observation. It's not rational truth developed by the human mind, but it is a truth that is revealed from God that is the standard by which all other truth is evaluated. Uh, Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is able to bring about that which he has has declared. In John seventeen seventeen, Jesus praying to God said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So there he is saying that God's word is absolute truth. Fifth, as absolute the truth, the Bible has eternal value. And you can look at numerous passages on this. For example, Isaiah forty eight says that the word of God stands forever. In Matthew 24:35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. They have an eternal value. Matthew 5:17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then we can go on to the sixth point, as absolute truth is the, as absolute truth, Scripture is the source of our guidance and direction. So when we uh, look at these passages, what we see is that the Word of God is objectively revealed to us, that it is God who inspires or breathes out through the writers of Scripture. These are remarkable claims. This isn't from man. It is from God. And the uh, inspiration extends down to the minutest details. So... As we look at this claim of the Bible to be absolute truth, it ought to see it confirmed in real life, in history, in the artifacts that we find. So we have the testimony of archaeology. Now, we have to remember that archaeology doesn't prove or disprove anything. Archaeology simply tells us what is buried in the earth, what has been found, what has been discovered, that's been left over the remains of previous uh, peoples and previous uh, civilizations. But it can either corroborate or it can discredit certain claims. So we have to look at this. Now, this is what I think one of the great quotes from Nelson Gluck, who was an American scholar. He was the president of... um, Uh, Hebrew University, and he was an American rabbi and archaeologist. He lived from 1900 to 1971, and he uh, was responsible for many discoveries in Israel, archaeological discoveries. 
He was not a conservative. He was not a Bible believer. In fact, he made many statements where he didn't think that faith was based on history. Faith was based on evidence. He separated fact, uh, faith from fact, faith from history, and faith from science. But he said, all that I've ever said is that in all of my archaeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the Word of God. That is a profound statement. This is not a conservative fundamentalist who is speaking. And this kind of statement can be found time and time again from archaeologists who work in the ancient world. So uh, we can't prove the Bible in the sense of proving something in the laboratory, but if the Bible makes certain claims and certain statements that are grounded in history and geography, then the Bible can, that can be validated or uh, through archaeological discovery. This follows a principle in Scripture that Jesus stated in John 3.12. He said, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, if I talk to you about the things that you can validate through empiricism and rationalism and you don't believe that, you'll never believe me when I talk about the things you can't see, the things that must be taken by faith on the basis of revelation. So Jesus makes it clear that that when we look at the Scripture and we look at archaeology, we're validating some of the things that can be validated through empiricism. But it doesn't prove that which it points to, which is the eternal spiritual truth. So archaeology is it's not an exact science. It's an inexact science. It's limited in what it can prove, it can simply show the remains of what was there. So if there's no remains of something, it doesn't mean it didn't exist. It just means there's no remains left of something that, that, that happened. People try to find Jesus' grave. Well, Jesus rose from the grave. That means you're not going to find his body in a grave. It's not there. That doesn't mean he didn't rise from the dead. It just means that you, it probably validates that fact that he's he, he rose from the dead. Now, I want to mention five archaeological discoveries that have undercut liberal assaults against the Bible. Background to this is in the early 19th century, there were two liberal German scholars, Julius Wellhausen and Karl Heinrich Graf. Usually this is referred to as the Wellhausen theory or the Graf-Wellhausen theory. And they set forth a theory that was called the documentary hypothesis. They denied, they said Moses couldn't have possibly written the Pentateuch, the Torah. It had to have been written much, much, much later because, see, they're evolutionists. Uh, They were liberal German theologians. But, see, that's a redundancy because all German theologians just about in the 19th century were liberal. They didn't, that means they didn't believe the Bible was what it claimed to be. So it can't possibly be what it claimed to be. So therefore, uh, it had to have been written some other way. And one of the things that they put forth, because there hadn't been a lot of archaeological discoveries at that point, was Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch because Moses, nobody at that time could write. They were pretty primitive. 
and that was long before many, many discoveries. And I remember being taught that as fact by a one of them, actually who ended up being one of my favorite uh, history professors in college, but I was taught that in 1970. I went back and had an encounter with that professor some almost 20 years later, and we had a lively discussion about all of the fraudulent uh, reasons supporting the documentary hy hypothesis, and he refused to believe any of them. He was still teaching it as to some of you know Paul Shockley, who um, as a pastor in the Houston area used to be at Pine Valley, assistant pastor over there. Paul had the same professor in the early 90s said he was still teaching the documentary hypothesis as fact. So just because you have the facts doesn't mean anybody's going to believe you because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But one of the, in, in the early 20th century you, and mid late 20th century, you had three great discoveries. Mari, here in on the Euphrates River, just about 10 miles inside Syria from Iraq. You had Nuzi over here in Iraq. And then you had Ebla, which was discovered in the in 1975. I started seminary in 76. And this was, everybody was talking about this. Old Testament introduction class. Every class, they made some reference to what had just been discovered at, at Ebla. These, these locations were demonstrated that, that at the time of Moses, writing was quite old. At Mari, which was discovered in 1933, uh, it dated 2500 B.C., a thousand years before Moses, and they had a sophisticated writing. They had numerous uh, cuneiform artifacts that were uh, discovered. Nuzi uh, was on the Tigris. It dated from about the same time as, uh, as, the, as Moses, and there was writing discovered there, but the huge find at Ebla in northwest Syria, they discovered tens of thousands of a huge, enormous library, and it dated to 2,500, 2,600 uh, B.C., a thousand years before Moses. So that just put a lie to that whole idea that Moses was so primitive, nobody could write at that point. Also, after um, after they had discovered that, in the early or late 19th century, there was the Code of the Black Stele, which contained the Code of Hammurabi uh, that dated to 1700 B.C., 300 years before Moses. They said, well, Mo at the time of Moses, they couldn't have a sophisticated law code like he wrote, but here Hammurabi had a sophisticated law code that was very similar to the law of Moses, and that predated Moses. There have been many people who doubt the existence of David, King David. Oh, that's just a mythical, legendary figure in Israel's history. But in 1993, up at Tel Dan, they discovered an inscription which refers to the house of David. And so there is inscriptional evidence of the existence of the house of David. That just shattered the liberal archaeologists. Uh, at Megiddo, some of you have been with me to Megiddo, uh, which was one of the chariot cities of Solomon, where he had his stables. Uh, Yigael Yadin, uh, who was also part of the discovery of the, of the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls anyway, um, he excavated there. 
when he went to Hazor, which was another one of Solomon's uh, chariot cities, when they discovered where the wall was, he went out and he said he had a inspir- an inspiration one day, and he said, I bet their gates are just like the gates at Megiddo. And so he went to where he thought the gates were, and they drew an outline of where the walls for the gates would be. And then he told the men, dig here. They dug down, and he had drawn exactly where the walls were. The diggers just were amazed that he had done that. Uh, We've discovered the uh, remains of Capernaum, where Jesus lived, where Peter lived, the second-century synagogue built on a first-century synagogue where Jesus would have read the Scripture. We found the uh, remains of the house, which is where Peter lived. And this is believed to be so on the basis of graffiti that was written, found there in the uh, that would date back to the early second century. That people were already at that time making pilgrimages to Israel and to Capernaum, where Jesus had lived, and going to what was known to have been the house of Peter, and it was a church. And each of those walls there shows how it was enlarged over the years. A church was there. I got this is an older picture. Those of us who've been there in the last 20 years, there's now a church, Roman Catholic church, that is, is suspended above it. And uh, so you don't really see that clear of a picture. We've discovered the ossuary, the bone box, where the remains of Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of uh, that condemned Jesus to death. Uh, Joseph Caiaphas is buried in that box, the remains of it, plus we found an inscription at Caesarea by the sea that uh, talks about uh, Pontius Pilate. His name is uh, carved into the rock, so that substantiates his existence, which was doubted by uh, some that, well, these names are just made up. These people didn't really exist. And then in the, um, in the 1960s, they discovered this, this heel, uh, 1968, uh, remains of a heel bone with a nail through it, showing that, and this is in the Israel Museum, uh, showing that how they crucify people. Often it was taught, thought that the feet were put on top of each other and a nail driven through that, through, through, the, two, uh, to, through the two feet. But it would have been more like something like this on the right or possibly on the left where you have the post and the feet are put on each side of the post and then the heel bone is nailed into the post. And so this is, gives us another view of uh, crucifixion is how it was conducted at that time. All of this doesn't prove the Bible is true. It doesn't say anything about God or redemption or justification or anything like that. But what it shows is the historical, geographical uh, references in the Bible are validated through what has been discovered uh, through, uh, through archaeology, historical writings, and validates our trust in the scripture. What we'll do next time, I want to come back and look at the fourth area, which is the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. We'll talk about two things, the fulfilled prophecy apart from 
prophecy related to Christ. Then when we get to the second issue, which is who was Jesus, then we'll talk about prophecy related to the uh, Messiah. So that gives you some basic things to talk about, the uniqueness of the Bible, what the Bible claims about itself, and that those claims are validated through archaeology as well as through fulfilled prophecy. This is the evidence. It's how we use it that's important, but we all need to be aware of this evidence. It strengthens the faith of believers, and it also helps unbelievers to understand what really happened because many of them just don't have a a clue what the Bible talks about or what these evidences are. They're just repeating something they've heard somebody say. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening. Help us to uh, learn this material, to capture it, summarize it in our own souls so that uh, as we talk to people about our Lord who died for us, that you can use this information as we encourage people with the truth of Scripture that your word is dependable and faithful because it is your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.